He asked a different question. The question he asked is, can you tell your story to yourself and have it be healing? And the answer is yes, and it deeply matters how you do it. Welcome to the Find Your Voice podcast, a show where we believe in the power of the written word to create positive change in your personal life, your community, and the world. I'm your host, Allison Fallon. Whether you're an aspiring author or someone who swears they're not a real writer, we're here to show you how a regular practice of writing will help you access your intuition, make an impact, and find your voice. Join me for interviews with authors, writing prompts, and stories of how even simple words change lives. This month on the Find Your Voice podcast, I have a special treat for you. Along with my team here at Find Your Voice, I've put together a special series that's all about the power of a writing process to create positive change in your personal life. So we're covering topics like why writing can be so challenging for so many of us, what's happening in your brain when you sit down and you try to write, why writing is so therapeutic, what it costs us when some voices are silenced, and what a regular practice of writing might look like for you in your real life. We're going to meet guests like Deborah Ross, who's a therapist and an author of a book called Your Brain on Ink, a workbook on neuroplasticity and the journal ladder. We'll talk with Audrey Assad, who is a singer-songwriter, also a friend of mine. We'll talk with Elise Snipes, who's a therapist, and the infamous Science Mike, and my new friend Rafiq, who is a public health researcher. And we'll end with my friend Ruthie Lindsay, who's going to put all the pieces together for us when she talks about how she used a process of writing specifically to cure her own chronic pain. I'm so excited for you to hear that episode and her story. If you've ever had the impulse to write anything, even something as simple as a scratched note on a cocktail napkin, you're not going to want to miss this series that pairs beautifully with my new book, The Power of Writing It Down, a simple daily habit to unlock your brain and reimagine your life. I hope these episodes make you feel like the writer you already are. On last week's episode of this special podcast series called The Power of Writing It Down, we talked about what's going on in the brain as we write. We carve new neural pathways as we make sense of our lives. In this episode, we talk about how to utilize that power for personal healing. The secret is this. It doesn't actually have to be that hard. In fact, it's really simple to tap into the therapeutic aspects of writing. This week, you'll hear from some of our favorite experts, journal therapist Deborah Ross and the infamous Science Mike, and I'll introduce you to a therapist named Elise Snipes, who's going to walk us through the cognitive behavioral model, which I talk about so much. You're going to get a sense of how easy it is to change your life by writing it down. All it takes to leverage the power of writing for positive change in your own life is to write about your own life. Now, why does writing work so well as self-therapy? The answer lies in something called cognitive behavioral therapy. I tracked down one of my very favorite therapists to explain it to us. I am Elise Snipes, and I am a therapist by trade, and I also founded the Radical Wellness Collaborative, which is a health platform that provides holistic care to everyone everywhere. And then I'm the podcast host for Trailer Cast Podcast. 
I feel like I'm always I'm always talking about CBT because of the clear crossover between CBT and why writing is such a powerful tool for own healing. But I'm not a therapist. I'm not. This is not my area of expertise. I'm you know I'm just like uh, like uh, I've read a few books. I've read enough books to be dangerous. <laughs> so I'd love for you to talk about cognitive behavioral therapy. Can you start by just breaking it down for us? Like what is CBT? Sure. Yeah, absolutely. And what's you're already kind of getting to it, which is it's so user-friendly and it's so mm-hmm. easy to attach to. And so it's kind of like the skeleton or a way in which psychology kind of found its bones. And then it's found some more flesh over the years. So specifically with CBT, it's it's behavioral modification. It's a way to shift action. And it Mm. it looks at the relationship between your thoughts, your feelings, and your behaviors. And so a lot of the reason that people are drawn to it is because it's, it's simple, it's straightforward, and it incites action. And instead of trying to spend a lot of time, it's not necessarily insight oriented, it's action oriented. And so I think there's a lot of appeal to, as soon as I get this outside of me, right, my thoughts, feelings, behaviors on, on the outside, then I can see it and I'm able to do something about it. So the whole process, yeah, in and of itself is user intuitive. I love that. It's so it's what's happening when let's, let's talk about what happens if I go see a therapist and I'm so the kind of like the typical or stereotypical, I guess, vision of what it means to go see a therapist. So I go to an office and I sit on the couch Mm -hmm. and they start asking me questions how are they thinking about CBT or how are they using that model as a way to help me grow or change or modify my behavior? Okay. So if you've ever had your vision tested and they put those super trippy goggles on you and then they flip through, does this better? Or is this better? Is this better? Or is this better? And the, I feel like the lens keeps shifting, right? Until you decide which one is more clear for you. And I think that that's the approach when a person comes in is let's try the lens of CBT. Okay. Let's try Mm -hmm. the lens of attachment-based therapy. Okay. Let's, which one is better for you? And we're trying to find a way to provide as much clarity as possible for the vision of the person on the couch. So CBT is so clear. And the way that we would help a person get started with CBT is we'd actually use the CBT triangle and it's a pretty quick, easy Google search. And if you literally just try to imagine a triangle drawn in front of you, you'd have thoughts on the top, feelings on the right point, behavior on the left point. And the point is that if we could start to individually understand what is happening at the thought point of my triangle, what's occurring in the feeling center, what's occurring mm-hmm. in the behavior center. And what I start to do is I start to actually understand how they all affect each other. And if yeah. I can jump in anywhere there, maybe I, I, maybe I don't understand my feelings, but I'm really oriented towards my thinking. We can hop yeah. in anywhere in the triangle in order to provide insight to create change. I love that. I love it because it's exactly what we talk about when I talk about using expressive writing as a tool for change in your life, that this idea that your thoughts and your feelings and your behaviors, and then also like the the facts, the outcomes of your life are all connected to one another. And we don't tend to think of it like that. I think 
at least for me, I tend to move through the world, especially before I stumbled across this work or started doing my own therapeutic work. I tended to think of my life as just a set of experiences that were either somehow predestined or, or that, that I didn't have a lot of like, I didn't have my hand on the lever of whether uh, what I experienced or didn't experience. So it was like, okay, well, I drew the short end of the stick and I just happened to be a person who had this negative set of experiences that other people didn't have to endure. And since I've come to understand cognitive behavioral therapy, sure, there are some things that happen in our life that just that we don't have any control or connection, control over or connection to. But also I started to see how a lot of the outcomes of my life, like for example, feeling really isolated and not feeling like I had deep friendships were attached to a feeling I had about myself to a thought or a story that I was making up about myself, which, you know, also were attached to a previous experience or a set of experiences that I had had in my life. So it's not like I just decided to have this feeling about myself, but I think what you're getting at here is that when I can pull back the curtain and see what the feeling is, recognize that there's a thought going on that's unconscious that I, so most of the time I don't realize it's happening and I can bring that into my conscious mind then I actually have my hand on the lever of change and I can start to create and chip away at this outcome I'm getting in my life that I don't want to get anymore. Is that, am I getting that right? Yes. I love it. Yeah. Cause so what, and I think this is like, you're pointing to, it's like the story beneath the story, right? Mm-hmm. So I, I go in because I'm, I'm, I'm lonely. So I go see a therapist and we look at the CBT triangle, but the, the problem, right, isn't that I'm lonely, right? The problem is that I believe that I'm bad or yeah. people don't really understand me. And so it, this is the portal. CBT is just the portal to get to the story, to get to the wound, to get to the inciting incident that triggered this whole line of I'm faulty, I'm faulty, I'm faulty. Mm-hmm. So you're absolutely right. Writing uncovers the story beneath the story of our lives. And rewriting that story, the story beneath the story, that's self-therapy. Now let's return to my conversation from last week with Deborah Ross, author of Your Brain on Ink, a workbook on neuroplasticity and the journal ladder. She's talking about journaling, therapy, and journal therapy. What's common in the journal therapy world is that the client is not necessarily writing with the therapist. I mean, you know, you may be using some of your session time to be doing that, but it's also cueing the person in how to uh, do this at home. I mean, we, we call a journal, well, this is, you know, a, a while ago, I'm sure notebooks have gone up, but the 79 cent therapist. Yeah. 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 Totally. <laughs> You know, but I think what you're touching on is interesting because this is a lot of what we teach at Find Your Voice. I mean, we work with authors to help them get published, but then I also have been really impressed over my years of working with writers, how truly therapeutic the writing process can be. And so I'm not a therapist, I'm not a certified counselor, but I do encourage people into the writing process. And what I often hear, even people who who aren't planning to publish, I encourage them to to develop a regular practice of writing. And what I often hear is, well, I'm not really a writer or I wouldn't know where to start. And so we like to provide people with lots of prompts and easy ways to get to, to get started with the writing process. But I think what you're touching on here that's so important is that 
not just any writing will do. So could you, I know this is a huge question, but could you talk about like a couple of elements of the writing process that really do make it therapeutic for anybody who's listening, who wants to use journaling as a form of therapy? What makes it therapeutic is not just telling your story. Let me back it up a little bit. Back in the early 1980s, social psychologists or psychologists were looking at the question, why is it that telling your story to a therapist is potentially healing? I mean, most folk will have some network of family and friends with whom they can share a story. Mm-hmm. And one of those social psychologists, whose uh, name is Jamie Pennebaker, who is at University of Texas at Austin, mm-hmm. um, still, I believe, is an emeritus professor there now. He yeah. asked a different question. The question he asked is, can you tell your story to yourself and have it be healing? Yeah. And the answer is yes. And it deeply matters how you do it. So this notion that we can rage on the page, that we can just, you know, blast away all of the internal churn and burn and and throw it onto the page, and somehow that is going to be healing, is actually not correct. That is the first step. But what's critical is how are you going to make meaning of all of this? Yeah. And yeah. and that's the piece that often goes missing. And, you know, from the neuroscience world is the phrase, you know, neurons that fire together, wire together. And so, mm-hmm. you know, if, if you think about, uh, you know, getting exercise and, you know, I don't know, going to the gym or taking, well, I don't think anybody's going to the gym much these days, but <laughs> <laughs> taking a walk, right? So, the more you do something, the stronger that muscle gets, or in this case, the neural circuits get. And so you don't necessarily want to strengthen the churn and burn rage on the page circuitry. And yet that is what people often do, you know, when they're, they're just blasting away. So the point is, how are you going to make meaning of this story? And also important is, how are you going to carry that meaning forward? So if you think of the metaphor of uh, composting, for example, if mm-hmm. you if you have all of this, you know, stuff, you can call it the refuse or the, you know, the garbage of your life. I mean, um, and now you've got this, you know, pile of stuff. How, A, are you going to compost it? And so what that you get this glorious pile of compost what are you going to use? Um, how are you going to use it to nourish something? What are you going to grow with it? And that's those are the pieces that are often missing when people simply sit down and pick up the pen and rage on the page. Mm. Yeah, that resonates with my experience too. When I think of how I've used writing as a form of healing, it usually starts with sort of a brain dump, which could could you know, feel like rage on the page, but it only really is helpful if I pull back from that first draft, look at it, see myself and my thought processes really clearly, and then reframe and, and reshape the story into something that's, that's healthier. Yeah, Um, absolutely. And there, there are two, two pieces of this. And, and one of these is Kathleen Adams, you know, brilliant contribution to, to this world 
Uh, she was working in patient psych many years ago. And, you know, back then, you know, common thing, you know, when you're experiencing all of these difficult feelings, put them down on the page. And what she was finding is that oftentimes people would feel worse and not better. And so mm. she took a look at a number of different journaling techniques and arranged them on a ladder with the base of the ladder being the techniques that are more structured, more paced, more contained. And the way that people customarily write is stream of consciousness, which is way up at the top of the ladder. So you can do a couple of things. One is you can learn some techniques that bring you down lower in the ladder and give you more structure, more pacing, and more containment. And then you you don't have to work your way up in a linear fashion, but you you can match uh, where you are with with techniques. The other piece is, I think this is critical, is to do something that in my world we call a reflection write. And so you finished your writing, no matter what it is, no matter what technique, no matter what your topic was, how long you're writing, all irrelevant, you finish it. Then you go back and you take a look and you do a couple of lines of reflection, what I'm noticing, what I'm aware of, were there any surprises here? And the key component is what was the embodied experience of having done this right? Oh, that, you know, I had a lot of tension in my shoulders and it, oh, it's actually still there. It might even be worse. Or, yeah. wow, the tension in my jaw has relaxed. Or I noticed my handwriting changed over here. That is the piece that now puts you in relationship with your writing. A much more intentional relationship. And that then gives you some options to be much more skillful in what you're going to do next, you know, whether that's an action step or whether or not when you pick up the pen the next time, you're going to continue with this topic, either you know, continuing to write what you were writing or or taking it in another direction. But you know, if you think about the meditation world and how much that is about what is the relationship that I have with my thoughts? What is the relationship I have with my feelings? Mm. Well, this is what is the relationship I have with my writing? And how intentional do I wish to be about it? And those are the the critical pieces that I think fall into the journal therapy world. I love that phrase, the relationship with your writing. That feels really like an important distinction between the two things you're talking about, just the simple stream of consciousness writing and and the writing that is the most healing for people. I also chatted with Science Mike on this topic. He has some thoughts on writing as therapy as well. You mentioned writing being like therapy, and I'm curious from a brain science perspective, in what ways is writing a really effective form of self-therapy? And in what ways would writing fall short? Because I think it's important to talk about that too from a mental health standpoint that, you know, it, writing can't always be a replacement for therapy. But I'm curious in what ways is it like therapy? What way, How is it doing the same thing in our brains that therapy would do? And then in what ways might it fall short? Our memories are so malleable, just wildly flexible things. I used to think that people, myself included, were very dishonest because I would notice the ways that I told a story over time. It would shift and twist. And every time I told that story, it felt real and right and original. I never had some 
conscious effort to deceive. But when I started, you know, having talks I gave recorded and listening back, then I'd be like, wait a second. Last time I said it was three, and this time I said it was five, and next time I said it was two. Which one of those is real? The way our memories work, we don't like, we're not like a video camera. We don't, we don't record footage into our mind. That's not how our memories are encoded. And what mm. we understand about human memory is every time, like we don't have a CPU and memory as separate like a computer does. All of our thoughts, our memories, and our feelings are contained in the relationships between neurons that we call networks in our brain. And that means the act of recalling a memory causes us to experience it. And then we remember experiencing it as a recollection, which means we change it. So basically, the first time you recall and tell a story, you re-encode parts of that memory. And so anything you tell differently or a sequence that changes, your brain doesn't know that. Because guess what? For your survival, it doesn't matter if you get the sequence correct. It doesn't matter if there were three or five or 12 things. None of that matters. All that matters is did you survive or did you not? So our brains are perfectly set up for our memories to help us survive, not to tell accurate stories. But this turns out to be a gift because many of our memories are difficult or painful. And what therapy does at its best is let us revisit difficult and painful moments in our lives in a setting of safety mm-hmm. and support. And yeah. in doing so, we recondition our response to not only that memory, but anything in the present that could cause us to recall, or you might have heard this uh, called, trigger that memory. Yeah. So when we write at its best, we are going through, because compelling writing often involves difficult things for a reason, the drama, the conflict, (laughs) and our ability to overcome. And when we revisit these things in the safety of our writing room, often we we do what a therapist is doing. We we recontextualize this memory and we learn to derive some meaning from it, which the psychologist Viktor Frankl tells us is incredibly important. Hmm. So that's all well and good, and that's really helpful. But because we are not mental health professionals, Sometimes we might explore our memories in ways that deepen our trauma or cause other people to be traumatized. Some of the most powerful stories actually end up reactivating people, including the person who wrote it. I've heard authors say that there's a book they wrote that they can't read. Yeah. They can't go back to that place. And here we come to the limits of writing because what a a trained and experienced therapist does is help us consistently move towards safety in all of our recalling and re-encoding experiences. And we're just not always equipped that to do ourselves, especially when we've experienced trauma in our lives. Uh, Because people have experienced trauma, their nervous systems get re-encoded in pretty significant ways. And the energy required uh, to survive events that cause trauma, uh, they 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 burn really deep networks into the brain that can be difficult to break out of. Let's end with Deborah Ross's thoughts on writing as therapy. 
So given all of this, I'm curious in your opinion, when, like in what situations would expressive writing be most helpful for people? Well, okay. So when I say expressive writing, I mean specifically Jamie Pennebaker's protocol. I guess you could replace that with journal therapy or, or any other sort of like modality where writing is the, the tool that's used. I think it can be a wonderful tool for pretty much anyone, but there are times, you know, when it's, it's not going to be the sole tool. It, it's going to, it might, it might be the primary, but it might also be a support tool. Some of this also depends on what people are writing about, because there are times when I think you really need to have some distance between whatever the situation is. So, so sometimes processing really raw grief or, you know, the immediate aftermath of a trauma. Yes, it, it might be helpful to write about it, but boy, I would want somebody way down on that journal ladder, not way up at the top, you know, with stream of consciousness. So if somebody wanted to write about it and, you know, they were experiencing real rawness, then they, they would really need to be, you know, much more in those structured, paced and contained things. So for example, at the bottom of the ladder is, or toward the bottom of the ladder is something called a five minute sprint where you do write quickly, but you set a timer. And when it goes off at the end of five minutes, you know, you stop, you stop. Yeah. Yeah. Or, you know, there are a, a list from the neuroscience world is the phrase, name it to tame it. So simply giving uh, words and names to an internal, uh, you know, sense of, of, you know, chaos or, you know, whatever somebody's feeling sure. can be helpful, but then you don't turn it into a sentence and you sure, sure. don't turn it into a paragraph. Sure. I was going to say that that's something that I've seen anecdotally. And it sounds like you're, you're affirming that, that when I work with someone who's writing uh, about an event that's still very raw for them, I find that they tend to write in broken sentences or bullet points or one, you know, five words at a time or whatever. And then as you, your understanding of the event, your perspective of the event, your healing of the event evolves, then your writing about it evolves as well. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. And I think, you know, a, a key component of, of this is, it's, it's the phrase from James Joyce, Mr. Duffy lived a short distance from his body. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, I was certainly raised that way. I think many people were. And so if people are constantly checking back in with, with their body about whether or not this writing is contributing, even in, you know, minute amounts to just a shred of a piece of well-being, then it makes sense to, you know, maybe write a little bit more. But if you are noticing, you know, that that internal sense, or, you know, you've really had to dissociate, you know, from it, then it's probably not the optimal thing to be doing. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, I think I think that's a, a key component. The other thing too is certainly people who have what is often called the thought disorder. If your thinking is really disorganized and distorted in ways that putting it on the page is, you know, going to lead to to more trauma, you don't want to re-traumatize yourself. And so sometimes, you know, people who are just picking this up on their own, I would say 
in the same way that if you were just getting off the couch and you, you've not done much exercise, walk to the end of your driveway. Okay. Right for three minutes. Yeah. See what happens. And marathon right off the bat. <laughs> I no, no, no. And by the same token, a marathon is still run putting one foot in front of the other. Yes. So you, you can get there if, if that really makes sense for you, but you, you want to have a sense of, of some exertion and no injury, no injury. Yes. That's such a good, good word. One foot in front of the other. It really is simpler than it seems. All it takes to use the therapeutic power of writing is to write about your own life. Come back next week for more on the healing power of writing. If you're ready to implement a regular practice of writing in your own life, don't forget to pre-order our copy of my latest book, The Power of Writing It Down, a simple daily habit to unlock your brain and reimagine your life. When you pre-order today, you'll not only get an immediate download of chapter one so you can start reading right away, you'll also get access to our pre-order bonus package, which is worth over $400. All you have to do is order the book wherever books are sold, Enter your order number at thepowerofwritingitdown.com and your pre-order bonuses will be delivered directly to you. Thanks for listening and until next time, happy writing.